0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. Today, we're here with George Fitzsimmons. Hi, George. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with the fact, I I checked out your bio, and you have tried more than 250 jury cases to conclusion, and you've handled more than 500 mediations. You must be exhausted.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) A little bit tired once in a while, but ready to go the next day.
2: So, George, you and I go way back and we worked together at the Gray & Ritter firm from 1990 to 2000?
1: Yes, correct. For 10
2: years. George's office was right next to mine and I was always in his office asking questions and getting great advice. And I tell people that probably 90% of what I learned, I learned when I was at Gray and & Ritter and most of it I learned from you, watching you and constantly asking you questions. You know, it was almost like a theme, the same two or three things all the time. I'd ask you about the value of a case, and you'd say, well, what is it? Where's the venue at? What's the liability? Just go try the case. You were the one there that really inspired me and pushed me to actually get in the courtroom and try cases.
1: Right. Well, when I started as a lawyer, I was a public defender in the city of St. Louis, and uh, there were only four of us there. And the second week I tried a first-degree armed robbery case, it it was like a light bulb went off. I said, this is what I want to do. And so over the next two and a half years, I tried more than 70 criminal cases to a verdict. As I said, there were only four of us, and the other lawyers weren't that interested in trials. So I would pick my cases, and contrary to what you might think, I did not pick cases that I could win, because if you could win the criminal case, the prosecutor would reduce the charges and you'd never get to trial. So I took the cases that were almost impossible to win. For instance, a rape case where the defendant was arrested driving the victim's car with the victim's purse in the car and he gave a videotaped confession. Well, I knew the prosecutor wasn't gonna make a deal on that one, so I tried it. You know, I probably lost 90% of my cases But that wasn't the point. The point was to go to trial. And everything I learned there, I took with me as my legal career went on, including at Gray and Ritter. And that is, represent the client the best you can. And when you can bring a case to trial, do it. You almost always do better at trial for your client than you do at a settlement. And so I was with my father for 15 years and I was at a big farm for a while. And then I was the last 12 years at Gray and Ritter, including with John. And those were just wonderful, great, happy years for me.
2: You know, George, a lot of what we talk about is more geared toward the plaintiff side. And that's just because of who we are. It's what we do. It's what I do. We have guests now and then who have done primarily defense stuff. You have a unique perspective because your career, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't it pretty much half and half civil defense stuff and then plaintiff stuff, right?
1: Right. My first 15 years after leaving the public defender, we represented insurance companies for the most part. Probably 80% of the work was representing the defense. And in those days, the trials were auto accidents and slip and falls. So got lots of trial work. One year alone, I had more than 30 trials to a conclusion. And I know some of the young people hear that and they say, I don't believe that. But it's true. They were constantly in court. And what I tell the young people, too, if you can learn to try a smaller case, you can try the bigger case.
2: Wasn't there a week that you tried or several weeks where you tried two cases to verdict in one week in two different places?
1: Yeah, I was going to set a record that would never be broken. I had five cases set for trial in five different counties in eastern Missouri on different days. Three of the cases went to trial for verdicts. Uh, one settled and one continued. So I only had three trials that week. Were they jury trials? Yeah, they were all jury <laughs> trials. I never tried a judge case. So what were they, like auto cases? Or? They were auto cases or slip and falls. One day. In those days, the judges in the areas outside of St. Louis would try a case in one day. Sometimes you'd be down there the jury would come in at 9 o'clock at night. It was
2: crazy. Nowadays, you're lucky if the panel comes into the courtroom to start dire before 11 or
1: <laughs> noon. That's right. With the judges in those days, well, they still do outside of St. Louis. They ran for office. So... They wanted to demonstrate to the jurors that they were hardworking. Those were great old days.
0: I once asked for a five-day jury trial out state. And the judge said, we don't give five-day jury trials. We just don't do it. And he explained the same thing that you just said, that they get in at 7, 7 a.m., and they'll go as long as they need.
1: Right. Yeah, and then in uh, 1978 or so, I started doing some medical malpractice fence. And I enjoyed that for a period of time. And then I also was with a big firm for five years, which eventually morphed into the firm Pulsinelli.
2: So, George, how old were you? How many years had you practiced before you started doing plaintiff's work, plaintiff's civil cases?
1: I did those right from the beginning. I always had some. So I was in my early 30s.
2: What's the big difference? What is it you liked or didn't like? In other words, comparing plaintiff's work versus the defense stuff.
1: Well... I'd like the plaintiff work better because in the plaintiff work, I would feel like I was helping somebody, felt I could be a lot more creative. I likened it in trying a big plaintiff case to putting on a production where I would sit back and think, okay, how am I going to present this case to these jurors so I can entertain them, influence them, keep their interest as the case went along? And also, of course, produce the end result of a good verdict for my client.
2: You know, George, one of the things that you said over and over again, and I continue to say it, and that is keep it simple and keep it short.
1: Yeah. Some of you who uh, go and listen to a speaker, whether it's a priest or rabbi at church, know that your attention span is probably five to seven minutes at best. So many lawyers like to talk, but the reality of it is you can't keep the jurors' attention if you don't get right to the point. Jurors appreciate you getting to the point, giving them the facts, being organized, and particularly if your opponent is the opposite, because as the trial goes along, if you see the jury getting irritated with one of the lawyers, most likely that lawyer will lose.
2: My office was right next to George's for 10 years, literally right next to me. And so every once in a while, I would come in my office on a Wednesday or a Thursday, and there would be a file on my desk with a post-it on it saying division 12 on Monday. (laughs) (laughs) I'd never seen the file or met the client, and it was a case that George was negotiating for one reason or another, it wouldn't settle or the parties would be close or whatever. And George wouldn't talk to me, but I would just look at the file and pick up the phone and call the client, you know, and talk to him. And most all of more auto accident cases, cases that took a day and a half or two days to try. But I like that. It got me in the courtroom. It got me trying cases. I remember those calls to the clients on a Friday saying, hey, and introducing myself, <laughs> saying, I'm John and I'm going <laughs> to be trying your case.
0: But that was good stuff. George, who were your mentors, and what are you most thankful that you learned from those folks?
1: Well, I definitely had mentors, and I would seek them out. The first mentor I had was a Judge Wong gone down by the name of Orville Richardson. He was a big-name plaintiff lawyer, and I tried a couple cases in his court, and I really liked him. And I would encourage the young lawyers to do what I did, and that is... I went to him and I said, Judge, I would appreciate it if I could come and talk with you once in a while and get some advice. Judge said, said, sure, George, come on over. I was in a trial. There were probably eight lawyers in the trial, all veteran, very complicated case. And this very unusual issue came up. Nobody knew the answer. Judge Richardson, everybody back to my chamber. So we went back there, and as we walked in, he said, George, would you look up 187 Southwest 2nd? I think it's page 350. And there it was. There was the case that answered the question that these eight veteran lawyers didn't know. And that's the way Judge Richardson was. And he wasn't the first one either. I had other ones I would seek out. Sometimes there were another judge or two who I would talk to and meet and discuss. When I was a public defender, I would look for any opportunity to go watch a trial. And I think even nowadays, young lawyers should do the same. If you get to know some of the clerks or if you just have a morning kind of free, walk over to the courthouse and walk the hallways and see what's going on. There's nothing better than watching the good lawyers try cases. You can't beat that for experience.
0: Your story reminds me how social our profession is. There's an author or speaker named A.J. Jacobs who has a TED video where he thought, I'm really enjoying this cup of coffee that I just bought. I'm going to go thank the people who made my cup of coffee. And so he goes to the store where he bought the cup of coffee and he says, I'm going to find out who made the cup. And then he eventually goes he travels down to guatemala he walks up to farmers he's shaking their hand and they're looking at him like what so he's going all over the world talking to the truck drivers the lawyers the accountants everybody connected with it and we kind of have the same thing right if we're just looking at ourselves we're almost nothing almost a tiny speck of the system we're a piece a small piece of a vast complex system not just the rules but the people you know eric one of the things i
2: keep saying this but it's true These are things, little nuggets of wisdom advice that I've continued to apply and tried to pass on. And most of them are just so practical. They're just practical. One of the things you would say all the time is get to the courthouse early, whether it's a motion or whether it's a trial, get there, talk to the clerk. If you get there early, you spend some time talking to the bailiff. Maybe the judge might come out. Just get to know people, just get in the lay of the land.
1: That's right. When I was trying cases outside of St. Louis, I would get to the courtroom about 8 o'clock for a 9 a.m. trial and I'd go knock on the judge's door. He'd be sitting in there drinking a cup of coffee and I'd introduce myself and his first reaction, he was kind of shocked that a St. Louis lawyer was there early, but then he was, you know, very friendly, said hello, glad you came down here. We'd just talk a little bit. And then his friendly attitude generally would follow into the courtroom during the trial. And as you said, John, meeting the clerks, talking to the clerks, I'd introduce the clerks to the jury by name. And if the jurors picked up that the clerk and the judge liked the lawyer, that's a big step in the right direction. So it's good business and it's common sense. It's the right thing to do.
0: When I was in law school, I thought of it being a rather uncreative, profession, because you were just surrounded by rules. I've learned since then, it's profoundly creative. If you're successful, you mentioned the creativity. What role does that play? And maybe you can get an example or two of how you thought outside the box.
1: Well, everybody likes a good story. And the jury likes a good story. One of the cases in particular, I remember that kind of combines an odd case with out of town. I tried a case about 100 miles from St. Louis, down around Merrimack Caverns. And these two young men were driving a van down the two-lane highway in the dark. And all of a sudden, there was an explosion of the windshield. And the windshield shattered, and the men hit the brakes. And the driver brought the van to a stop. And he looked over, and his best friend, the passenger, was dead hanging out the front window of the van the driver started honking the horn and somebody came out and they called the police and the highway patrol came and they were all questioning what happened here what did you do to cause this accident then one of the state troopers said what is this dead black horse doing in the back of your van and what had happened was that the farmer left a gate open and the horse came running down the road in the dark and they couldn't see him. And he somehow the horse got through the entire front windshield of the van and the driver was uninjured. And the horse in its death row kicked the passenger in the back of the head and killed him. So that was a very perplexing trial. It it turned out that the jury didn't really have much trouble with it because they were aware that farmers and cattlemen have a duty to fence their property and the farmer left it open by accident. But so the jury did the right thing in that case and found against the farmer. So I think being creative, trying to get some humor in the case where you can, Being organized, I always thought it was very important at the desk to be 100% organized. Don't have your papers all spread around and you've got to search for things. You can't find them. Young lawyers should be aware that jurors are watching you. And I say that because if you ever talk to somebody who's been on jury duty, the first thing they want to talk about is what this one lawyer did or didn't do. And if you know the jury's watching you and they think you are organized, that must mean you believe in your client. Your client is well-prepared and dressed and appears to give respect to the court. If you do all that and don't waste their time, they're willing to listen. And if they're willing to listen and you get right to the point, then there's a good chance you'll win.
0: When we are at trial, the jury might be comparing us to the TV lawyers they see, you know, it's highly scripted and tightly edited and everything goes zip, zip, zip. There's a closing argument in three minutes and bang, you're done. And then in real life at best, it's going to be slower than that. And if you're not organized, it seems like they're going to make that comparison and think there's something wrong.
1: Right. And again, like in final argument, I never took the full allotted time given me by the court again I don't think people can pay attention for much more than seven minutes. Now, I don't mean it they were all seven minutes. Some of the arguments were 45 minutes. But the jurors have a limited attention span, so the quicker you can get to the point, the better. The other thing I found, I remember in my later years, some of the young lawyers would come and watch the trial, or maybe a younger lawyer was second seating a case I was trying. And they'd say to me afterwards, well, I know you said A, B, and C arguments, but why didn't you mention D, E, F, and G? And I said, you've got to let the jury figure out some things on their own. They don't want you to tell them every possible way that this can be resolved. They like to go back there and say, hey, the lawyer didn't say this, but what about this? and What about that? The other thing, I think lawyers have to be careful about judging one of the parties in the case or being accusatory to one of the opposing witnesses. You know, some people you can go after, but for the most part, let the jury be the judge whether the person is telling the truth, whether they're magnifying things. They want to decide the case. They don't want you to give them every reason.
2: I believe the same thing. You got to be careful. Because the jury's watching you as much as they're watching the witness. They're making assumptions and judgments about you and how you're acting. And, you know, you want to be credible and professional at all times. But sometimes you can still go after a witness, right? Yeah,
1: correct. Some witnesses, particularly uh, so-called hired guns on either side, you have to go after. You can get a sense, too, from the jury what they think about the witness, and they expect, for instance, on cross-examining the imposing party, be it the plaintiff for the defendant, cross-examining expert. As you said, Eric, they've watched a lot of cases on television. Even in a, in a civil case we try today, when it comes time to cross-examine an important witness, you'll see the jury kind of slide a little bit forward in their seats, looking to be entertained to a certain degree. They want to see a little bit of fireworks if you have the ammunition to produce it. I can remember cross-examining defense doctors in medical malpractice cases. And I can remember one fellow probably had testified 200 times for the defense. He said it's this way, and no, he said it's that way. But, you know, there's a limit in what you can do, but you, what I could do is go after him on the fact of he has testified 200 times for the defense, how much you make per hour, how much you make per day, you've never testified for the plaintiff, and on and on. And you can do it that way. If you can get some contrary medical texts that are recognizable as authoritative in the field, you can go after him that way. But you have to accept the fact it's kind of like trying to shoot an elephant If you're going to go after him, you better be sure you bag him because if he gets away and makes you look bad and turns it against you, that could be the end of your case.
2: You know, George, that reminds me one time many, many years ago, I guess this had to be 25, 30 years ago, I had a case that was going to trial and the defense was taking one of their experts. It was a medical malpractice case. They were taking a trial depot. They were going to do the videotape depot. I was in trial when that depot was scheduled, and I asked you to take the deposition. And that was back in the days of videotape. They'd give you the videotapes when you left, and they'd hand it to you and bring it back. And it was a doctor. It was a stroke case where a man in his 30s was going in for a lung procedure, I think. His blood pressure became very elevated during the procedure, and he ended up having a stroke during the surgery and was seriously injured. One of the issues was, was the blood pressure high enough to actually cause a stroke? Was he predisposed to the stroke? So on and so forth. And so I get back after my trial and there's a stack of stuff on my desk. And one of them is this videotape with a post-it. You always were good at putting post-its with two or three words on it. And you just said, watch this (laughs) on the post-it. And so I went in, we had the VCR, you couldn't do it on your computer, you put the tape in the big machine. And so I was sitting in the office one evening after my trial and I'm watching this videotape. You were in the conference room at the doctor's office. I don't know if you remember this. And you had the doctor pull one of his books off his own shelf and open it to a certain page. And he opened it and it had exactly what you were trying to get out of him in a book from his office. Your entire cross was about 10 minutes, about 15 minutes at most, the portion of the book that you pulled out eliminated the fact that he wasn't a candidate for a stroke. He didn't have this. He didn't have this, didn't have this. And the book also said that, you know, high blood pressure, even for a short period of time could cause stroke. The next thing you did is you pulled out the medical record for the plaintiff, the chart where they charted his vitals, including the blood pressure. And I hadn't caught this. I hadn't looked at it close enough. And you asked the expert, so at this point, the blood pressure, it's not on the chart anymore. We don't have a line on the chart. And he said, oh, no, we put that on the bottom because the number on the chart wasn't high enough. So that when that happens, you just write it on the bottom. And your next question was, so, doctor, that's what they mean when they say it was off the charts. <laughs> <laughs> that was your last question in the cross. And now, I will tell you that I was fully prepared to do about a 90-minute, you know, 60-minute cross-examination of this expert with all the things that you're talking about. And I looked at that, and I was very happy that you did that cross-examination for me, not me. Literally, it was 10 minutes, 12 minutes, and made every point we needed to make and made it in a creative way that was very, very memorable. It was terrific.
1: I frequently did that. If we were going to a doctor's office, I would... If he could be deposed in his own office as opposed to a conference room, I would try to eyeball what books he had behind him there and take some notes if I could. Of course, nowadays, a young lawyer could just go with his phone and take multiple shots of what textbooks the doctor thought were important to him, and it might have a happy ending like that.
2: You know, I think the other lawyer met with the doctor before the deposition, his expert for 30 minutes or so, and you got there early and sat in the same room where the depo was going to be taken. And that gave you some time to look at some of the textbooks on on the shelf. That could
1: be the story. Yeah, it's all about getting places early, getting places on time. I remember once I had a uh, medical malpractice deposition of a plaintiff's expert in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. This fellow was notorious. I mean, he testified literally in every state. I got there about 30 or 40 minutes early, and there were no cars in the parking lot. It was a standalone building. The office was open. There was a secretary in there. And I went in, and I got talking to her. The doctor hadn't instructed her not to answer any questions. So, you know, I asked her questions like, well, there's nobody here. Does he see any patients? She said, no, he doesn't. (laughs) And I said, well, who comes here? She said, just lawyers from all around the country. And I asked a bunch of questions like that. So when I took his deposition, when he arrived later, I was able to say, doctor, uh, you say you see patients. I just talked to your receptionist, Mary Anderson. Isn't that her name? She told me you have no patients. It's just be thinking all the time. If you're alert and prepared, good things will happen.
0: George, thank you for joining us on this episode, and thank you for agreeing to come back one more time for part two of our discussion with you.
1: Glad to be here.
0: All right. That's been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm John
2: Simon. See you next time.
0: The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.